I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So uh, I've been doing this whole Dharma teacher thing for, for a while now. And what happens when you start doing something for a while is you start to get uh, a little confident, maybe overly so, maybe, uh, maybe some of it's not even quite earned yet, but you feel it like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm effective. I'm entertaining. I'm all these things. Uh, and then I gave a talk to a high school senior class on Thursday. And uh, yeah, yeah, not, not any of that. Um, <laughs> I, I thought it would go really, really well. And it wasn't bad, but it certainly wasn't one of my best talks. You know, I thought I was really going to nail it. And like, you know, I, I can make some jokes, be clever, be funny, be pithy. These seniors will get it, right? And no, not, not really. You know, uh, a lot of them were still messing with their phones. A couple of them had their, had their headphones in, listening to something else entirely. And the rest kind of looked, well, bored, you know. But to be fair, you know, giving a Dharma talk here and then talking about Buddhism somewhere else, very different things. Generally speaking, I would think when people show up here, it's because they have a, an interest in Buddhism, kind of, or at least partially, or, you know, mostly, and they come here receptive, wanting to learn. Uh, a bunch of seniors taking a class on healthcare, not so much. You know, uh, they need to learn about multiculturalism. They need to learn about various cultures and religions they'll come across as health, you know, healthcare providers. A lot of these students want to become nurses, and they'll come across people of various traditions, various religions and cultures. Buddhism being one of them, and that's why I was there. But you know, the thing is, aside from uh, not having a really receptive audience, well, the other issue was that this kind of uh, panic set in on me. Not, not panic necessarily, more like, like an urgency. Sometimes I get this thing in my head where I'm like, this might be the only talk they ever hear. This might be the only talk they ever have on Buddhism. I got to throw it all in there. I got to tell them everything. I got to get into every little nitty gritty detail I could possibly do. So I started out trying to tell them about the life of the Buddha. And then I went off into politics in Nepal and India. And then I went off into the rationale for why the Buddha, you know, why Siddhartha Gautama left his wife and child and all these other, I, I went into all these different things. I was trying to explain the four noble truths and I, I spun out on all these details and I could just see this one senior girl just, and I just thought, man, I'm, Kind of blowing this one. So my takeaway from that experience is trying to train myself in providing um, what we might call bite-sized Buddhism. To succinctly say something that will actually stay in someone's head in about 25 minutes or so. And that's it. I got to shut up because I want to talk about everything. So I'm going to try to do that today, kind of, uh, because... In Buddhism, there are so many ideas, so many concepts, so many permutations of the same teaching that you can see from multiple sides, various facets. In fact, one scheme has about 37 of them. And I think there was even a talk last month, I think, uh, Sai Maharajan, he covered all 37, and, uh, which is useful uh, when you're ready for it. Uh, but a more bite-sized version of it would actually be focused on what are known as the five faculties, and, and I'll list them in a bit.
But the five faculties are really helpful because all of those 37 of the Bodhipakya Dhamma can actually go under, be kind of uh, under this umbrella of these five faculties. So initially, that's actually a really good way to practice. I like that kind of practice because it's good at the beginning just to have this much shorter system. And then as you develop it, you start to have more room, maybe more bandwidth to really take it all in. If you explore these five, by the end of fully going through them, you'll have all 37. I like this. This is why I also practice mindfulness of breathing. Because in the Pali Canon, you find that if you do mindfulness of breathing all the way through, just following the breath, you go through all of the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. You go through all of the seven factors for awakening, right? You go through all these things and, and you find yourself all the way towards the end of reaching the goal of Nibbana. All just by following the breath. Wow. Just one simple practice opens it up all for you. Which is why I like the idea of the entire 37 factors being able to be understood and practiced in five steps or five faculties. Now, of those five, I'm really going to mostly focus on the second one because that one ends up being, as you'll see, the most important. And I'll actually look at one of the suttas to really try to tie it in altogether. Now, these five, you've probably heard in one form or the other because they're kind of repetitive that way. We're looking at these same concepts from different points of view. So the first one is often translated as faith. And sometimes people react strongly to that word faith, right? Um, so I, the translation I like of this word sadda is, um, let's see, uh, like maybe confidence would work, but conviction, I think, will something be really helpful for us to think of in terms of conviction. The second one, and the one we're mostly going to focus on today, is usually translated as energy, vidya. But we're going to look at it in terms of persistence, and then the other ones are ones you're probably really familiar with because they're mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Now, mindfulness, we're pretty much going to keep the same. But uh, concentration, perhaps let's think of it more like tranquility or unification or maybe even stillness of mind. I like that one a lot. And wisdom, we might look at in terms of discernment instead. And so my, my plan for today is to kind of really generally go over them very quickly and then circle back to persistence, the second one, while looking at this one sutta, which I think is really helpful. Now, you might be wondering why uh, sadda I'm translating as uh, conviction. The reason why is because in the West, especially, faith means something... Um, blind, let's say, most of the time, for a lot of us growing up in the West. We think that faith is something we believe without reason, uh, without logic, without really trying to piece together why. We just have faith in this thing that we have no basis in, no grounding in. It's, it, we even call it a leap of faith. Now, in Buddhism, we work on developing faith in, the term, in terms of confidence or conviction because ultimately we want to have faith, or rather confidence, that the Buddha was actually able to secure his own liberation, his own awakening. Now, not because if we believe it, like it's true, and then we, we receive all sorts of good merits, all sorts of good wishes and happiness, maybe all of that too. But the real reason we really want to have faith that the Buddha was able to accomplish his goal and become liberated is it be because it means that we 
can become liberated. Now, ultimately, we want conviction. Conviction means essentially uh, having a, a strong, unshakable confidence in something, a, a belief that is, that is very secure. And we want to have that belief in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha for really simple reasons. Because we want to be secure in this belief that at least somebody found the way out of suffering, found the way out of dissatisfaction, stress, and misery, and found something undying, a form of happiness that's permanent. And we have to believe that he was able to successfully teach that in a way that other people can learn, emulate, and find their own release. And thirdly, we have to believe that those teachings somehow were preserved by a group of people so that we can practice it now. So we end up having confidence and conviction in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, mostly for our own benefit. It's very pragmatic this way. So faith is not always the best translation because we really want a belief that awakening is possible. So that's the first one very briefly. Now, persistence... Now, there's one way of looking at this, and I'll, I'll touch on it very briefly, and it's mostly about the contents of our mind, the kind of thoughts that we develop, or the kind of thoughts that we foster and feed. So we can think of our thoughts in mostly two broad categories, unskillful or unwholesome thoughts, mental activities, and wholesome mental activities. And essentially what we want to do is uh, abandon unwholesome thoughts that have arisen, prevent unwholesome thoughts from arising, to arouse wholesome thoughts and maintain wholesome thoughts. And that's most of the path right there, just in that one. Now, briefly, let's look at mindfulness. Now, if there's one thing that is, oh man, such a popular word right now, it's mindfulness. You find this word everywhere right now. Mindful dating apps, mindful drinking, Mindful everything, really. I mean, it's all over the place. Mindfulness this, mindfulness that. If only we can do things more mindfully. But in the Buddhist system of things, mindfulness really means something very specific. Now, if you look at the, the word that it comes from, that we translate as mindfulness, sati, it has a connotation of remembering. Specifically remembering the Buddha's teachings when we meditate, but also in developing a certain relationship to what we might call uh, four kind of relationships, four different things that we're looking at that are connected. And they're often called the satipatthana. So when we meditate and we're applying mindfulness, we're remembering the Buddha's teachings and applying them while we contemplate the body, contemplate feeling, which those are the feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, contemplating the mind, and contemplating what sometimes are called dhammas, some people translate this as like mental qualities. Some uh, assume Dhamma in this case means the Buddha's teachings. I like to split the difference and say that what we're, what we're contemplating is mental qualities in, uh, in, in like regards to the Buddha's teachings, you know, in, uh, in respect to the Buddha's teachings. So we're still trying to keep the Dhamma in mind, but we're looking at the contents of the mind. That's what it means. Not what a lot of people think nowadays, which is sort of this like bare attention sort of thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with bare attention, but if you've given it a shot, you've probably failed a lot because you're just trying to pay attention to stuff 
without having any thoughts come in, without having any concepts arise. You're trying to, to watch things without having any sort of commentary on the experience. And uh, yeah, if you haven't before, go ahead and give it a shot. Come back to me and tell me how useful it was. Because you'll probably find that for every time you tried, another thought arose. Another concept popped up. And in the Buddhist scheme of things, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at the very beginning. In fact, when we get to this other step of, of uh, concentration, we'll see that when we get into the very first jhana or state of absorption, there's still directed thought and sustained thought. So thinking is still something that happens at certain stages of, of meditation. And it's perfectly fine for those thoughts to be there. In fact, we're supposed to work on skillful thoughts. When we meditate, the idea of an empty mind is not something that I have found, at least, in the Theravada tradition and specifically in the Pali Canon. This idea that we're just supposed to have an empty mind while we meditate. What we're supposed to do, at least as far as I can see, is develop good thoughts, wholesome thoughts, skillful thoughts. And that takes a bit of effort. That takes a bit of focus, determination, and a lot of other good qualities. But it's not the kind of thing where we just pay bare attention to what arises. We actually pay a lot of attention to what arises and then choose what we maintain and choose what we abandon. And that leads to furthering skillful thought. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is in concentration, jhanas. And again, very briefly. And if not, of, not all of this sticks, it's completely okay. Mostly, I'm just trying to demystify a lot of this stuff because as you continue to study uh, the Buddhist path and meditation, uh, you'll come across these terms and they'll seem very ambiguous, very mysterious, and very difficult to understand. Nothing more so than the jhanas. I can demystify it in really one sentence. Jhanas just means meditation. That's it. A lot of people tie all sorts of, of weird theories to this thing, and it's happened all over the course of Buddhism. More thoughts and concepts have been piled onto it. But jhana comes from jayati. It basically means meditate. And the Buddha would tell his monks this all the time. Like, go, jayati, jayati, which just means go and meditate. So jhana is just meditation. And so these four absorptions that you might hear about as you continue to practice are really just a deepening of meditation. Now, I'm not going to go over all four because that could be a talk all by itself. And I wouldn't be doing bite-sized Buddhism if I went through all four of them. But the very first one is surprisingly simple. And we need to remember that the Buddha just sort of fell upon the first jhana when he was a kid and only later used that as a, as a way of exploring to see if that was the goal. That's how simple it was. When he was a kid, his father was out uh, amongst his people in the fields performing a ceremony, a breaking ground ceremony, because they were starting to plant seeds, you know, because they had an agrarian society. The Buddha as a child, he's still a Siddhartha or Siddhartha, right? And he's, he's just sitting under a tree. And while sitting under a tree, he's just breathing and, and just resting there. And he, and he stumbles upon this serene moment where he's filled with, uh, with rapture and bliss. Those are the, the translations often given for piti and sukha. Piti, I don't generally translate as rapture because it sounds way too intense. Um, I usually translate it as maybe joy. And then sukha, 
uh, even with bliss still seems like, whoa, super intense. And for a long time, I thought I wasn't having those things happen when I meditated because like, I'm not experiencing rapture or bliss. Like those are intense. Like you'd think light would be shining down and angels would be descending if stuff's like, like that's happening. And that, that's not it either. So, uh, let's think of piti as, as joy and sukha as, uh, as happiness, just happiness. Because that's something that is very attainable. We can experience joy and happiness when we meditate. And especially if we, we approach it in the way you're supposed to for the first jhana. Where you don't do anything mysterious, nothing mystical is happening. The Buddha says that in the first jhana, you have, you know, uh, you have joy and happiness that arise due to seclusion. Both physical and mental. Seclusion from unwholesome states. Seclusion from sensuality. And that's it. So if you ever wanted to experience the first jhana, you probably already have, but because of the language used, you didn't realize that's what was happening. In fact, I'm pretty sure the first time I experienced entering jhana, I was probably four years old. My parents and some of their friends decided to go on a hike somewhere, and they took me with them, and part of it I was walking, part of it they were carrying me. But there was this one moment where all the adults were taking a break and drinking water and everything. And I stumble upon this, uh, this grove of eucalyptus trees. And four-year-old me is just looking up at, at the eucalyptus trees. There's this breeze moving through and you can see all the leaves moving around. The air is permeating with the eucalyptus smell. And little four-year-old me is just enraptured in that moment, just breathing it in. And, and this peace descended on me. And it wasn't, it wasn't transformative, just like it wasn't for the Buddha then either. When he was Siddhartha and he had that moment, he still went on with his life until he finally decided to leave it and become uh, a renunciant, become a mendicant, a monk. But before that, it was just this one moment and it passed on. Same thing for me. I had this great moment where I, everything else dropped away and I just had this happiness well up in me. And then later that day, I probably went home and watched Voltron. I was four. But that's my point. These are things that, that become very mystical, but they don't need to be. The way we approach the practice can be very practical. And it's one thing that we can do to seclude our mind and our body, to live in a harmonious way, a skillful way, so that when we do meditate in seclusion, when we go off maybe on a small retreat or even spend a day practicing, we can feel that, that joy and happiness arise in us almost spontaneously. And the Buddha says that it permeates the entire body. Okay, the fifth thing before we go back to persistence. Uh, wisdom. Now, there's a reason why it can sometimes be tra translated as discernment and why I think it probably should be. Because uh, wisdom is, is still a useful term, but discernment better uh, explicates what we're actually trying to do with this quality. With discernment, what we're trying to do is actually have the ability to understand the Four Noble Truths. That means we have to be able to discern the nature of suffering, how it arises, how it's abandoned, and how we cultivate the path of abandoning suffering. Of course, the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path, which we've heard a bunch of times, and I'm not going to go over all of that either. because. That would not be bite-sized, right? 
So discernment actually has a lot to do with the kind of persistence we, we bring to the path because we're actively choosing our mental states, which is generally a think with something we think we don't have control over. We often think that we have no control over what happens to the mind. And the thing is, the way most of us live, that's probably pretty accurate. But what the Buddha tells us is that we have these faculties already in us. All of these things we use for the path are things we already have. We already have discernment. We already have mindfulness and concentration. We already have persistence and conviction in us. And all other qualities that we could possibly be talking about. All these qualities of investigation, uh, compassion, loving kindness, whatever you want to call them, you can list all of them. The point is, these are things that are already in us, that need to be cultivated, that need to be trained, that need to be developed. And that's the work of sifting through the unwholesome and really embracing what's wholesome, what's useful and skillful. Okay, so hopefully that wasn't too much. Let's look now at persistence. <clears throat> so to talk about this, I'm going to look at the uh, Sona Sutta, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya, for any of you studying the suttas. Now, uh, this sutta is about a particular monk, Venerable Sona. And so uh, let's, let's give some backstory first. So Sona, like a lot of the Buddha's disciples, was actually a really wealthy guy before he decided to go into homelessness. Not everyone had that. Some people were very poor and came to the Buddha and were accepted. Some people were very wealthy and they gave it all up and came to the Buddha and were accepted. He very rarely turned anyone away. And sometimes when he did, it was mostly like, ah, just think about it. And they'd come back and ask and ask and then he wouldn't invite them in. But Sona was one of those ones where he came from a wealthy family. He had a lot of stuff going for him. I mean, he had enough wealth back then that he could spend his time learning musical instruments. Now, if you can't conceptualize leisure time back in the time of the Buddha, if someone could learn a, an instrument, they've got leisure time. They're not tilling the fields. They're not working as a merchant trying to sell something. Like, you want some tea? You thirsty? I got stuff. None of that, right? This guy had time to learn how to play the lute. That's time. And time means money. If you got time, you got money, right? So this guy was able to learn the lute. And we'll see why that's important. But anyway, you have this rich guy who knows how to play the lute. And at one point, he comes up to the Buddha, hears the Buddha talk, hears the Buddha's teachings, and it resonates with him. He goes, you know what? I, I think I want to embrace this holy life. I, I want to give up my, my life as a as, as a, a home person, as someone living in the house, and I want to go off into homelessness and be a monk. And so he does. He tells his family, and they agree, because you actually had to have your family's approval to become a monk. That's still true today. People got to sign off on this and be okay with it. And so he goes to the Buddha. He says he's got permission. Everything's fine. He gets his robes. He gets his bowl. And then he gets to be a monk and practice. The thing about Sona is he's really motivated, maybe a little too motivated. You know, those overachieving types that just, you know, uh, just work themselves to the bone and they try really hard. Well, that can happen with monks sometimes too. And so Sona does exactly that. He decides he's going to be the best meditator ever. 
He's going to spend hours and hours in sitting meditation. He's going to spend hours and hours on walking meditation. And he would do walking meditation to the point where the soles of his feet would crack and bleed. Right? And he thought this was the way to practice. He was working really, really, really hard. And after one of these days where he had been walking and doing his walking meditation over and over and over again until his feet were bleeding, he sits down to meditate finally. So there he is with his aching feet. He sits down and he tries to meditate. And in the midst of his meditation, some thoughts arise in him. And the thought goes something like this. So here I am, you know, trying to uh, uh, give, give rise to this persistence with all the other monks. I, here I am, one of these people practicing the way the Buddha is taught. And yet I'm not seeing any progress. I'm not finding release. I'm not finding anything. I'm just here with bleeding feet. You know, maybe I should give this stuff up. Go back to my family and lay life. And, you know, they've got enough money. They can take, you know, they can take me back in and I'll be fine and, and have all my needs met. And, and maybe I can just generate merit by offering money to the Sangha. That, I think that's, that's all I'll do. You know, that, that, that should be fine. That thought arises in them. And the way these stories often go, the Buddha had his uh, Buddha sense tingle, you know, and he knew something was up with Sona. So he goes down to the cool grove where Sona was, was practicing. And uh, he says, hey, Sona, uh, how's your practice going today? And Sona's like, uh, well, yeah, I guess it's going okay, Buddha. And the Buddha's like, well, didn't you just have this thought arise? You know, maybe I should abandon this life and go back to my family and just gain merit by, by offering money to the Sangha. And Sona's, Sona says, well, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is what happened. And the Buddha says, Sona, when you were a lay person, uh, didn't you learn how to play the lute? Like, weren't you pretty good at it? And Sona says, yeah, I was, I was actually really good at playing the lute. And the Buddha says, okay, well... When you were playing the lute, you know, how would it sound if uh, the strings of the lute were too loose? Well, Buddha, you know, the sound wouldn't be very good at all. I mean, you really wouldn't be able to do, you know, anything. It's just, just no, no sound. Yeah, okay. And uh, if, if the strings were, were too tight, then how would that be? Well, not good at all. You know, the strings might snap. You know, the sound wouldn't be good either. It would just actually wouldn't be very good to play that way at all. And the Buddha nods and says, Okay, Sona, well, how about when the lute was tuned just right? And Sona says, Well, actually, yeah, in that case, it would play quite well, you know. And the Buddha says, Good, yeah. That's the same way you apply persistence. This faculty that sometimes is called energy, right? We might say that Sona was using a little too much. I don't know uh, how much walking it takes for your feet to bleed. I haven't done it. Must be a lot, right? He was trying too hard. His strings were too tight. And the Buddha says, if you apply persistence too loosely, you're often subject to laziness. If you apply persistence too tightly, you're often subject to restlessness. And that's also what we see in the kind of thoughts that were arising in Sona because of his persistence that was too tight. We see that rather than, you know, uh, going through the path in a gentle way, going methodically through, 
He was struggling and filled with strife and filled with tension. He was tight. And what arose in him were more unskillful thoughts, unwholesome thoughts of abandoning the practice, abandoning the path. And so once, the, once Sona took in this lesson, he decided to apply persistence in the right way. And not only persistence, but the other of these five faculties we covered of conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. He applied them all in the right way in the right measure. Now, the commentaries talk about using these five faculties balanced, tuned in relation to each other. And maybe there's something to that. But in the, sutta, in this, in the suttas themselves, in the sutta pitika, you, you find something different than that. Not necessarily in relation to each other, but each one on their own, attuned in the right way. Applying conviction in the right way. Applying persistence in the right way. Applying mindfulness in the right way. And the same with concentration and wisdom. But specifically persistence, because if there's one thing that we're trying to do, it's we're trying to create wholesome mental states. That's, that's the path for the majority of it. Only once we get to the end can we drop all these tools we've been using. Give up that raft once we've gone to the other shore. But until then, we have to have that conviction until it becomes knowledge. We have to have that persistence until it's no longer necessary. We have to use mindfulness and concentration as our tools of meditation until we no longer need them in the same way. And the same thing with wisdom. Something that we, we cultivate is discernment until we no longer need to discern what's wholesome and skillful and what's unwholesome and unskillful because now we know. And now we live in that way. It becomes our natural state of being. Because the path that we walk is a gradual one. It's one that we approach slowly, methodically. That's why persistence, I think, is a better word than, than energy. Because energy is kind of a... If, if I were to try to give the right word to it, I guess um, energy doesn't have any of our actual intentions involved. It sounds too passive. You either have the energy or you don't. You, you either had you know, your espresso that morning or you didn't. I just don't have the energy. But persistence, that sounds more intentional. That sounds more on purpose than energy because persistence is something you do whether you feel you've got the right energy or you don't. But it's also something you do in a gentle way. It has to be tuned right. You know, I think back to when I was very new to meditation and I was striving and struggling because I thought it was the right way and I'm trying to focus and, and clear my mind of, of all of these, you know, unwholesome thoughts and just struggling, struggling, sweats just dripping down and I'm, I'm sweating through my shirt and, it, and I'm just miserable and I get so stressed out which is the opposite of what we find in that first jhana. Because we're supposed to have joy and happiness as the result of our meditation. This is why the Buddha says that his teaching is good at the beginning, the middle, the end. Because even at the very beginning, we're supposed to see results. I question these people, these teachers who say, you know, it's just years and years of struggling until it starts to feel good. You just got to suffer through it. Oh, I would say you're meditating wrong then. I'm not saying it, it's always supposed to be like the best experience ever. That's why I don't like using rapture and bliss. But you should feel some alleviation of, of your stress immediately when you practice the right way. Because you are secluding yourself from all the stuff that causes stress. You know, 
you have to seclude yourself by following the precepts. And it's not because they're dictated, mandated. It's often just because that's one way you seclude yourself from unwholesome mental states. If you spent your weekend at Vegas doing jello shots and you know watching strippers and then you go and meditate and try to get into jhana, you're probably not going to, right? There are other ways to go about that. You have to follow the path. And it might seem like a bummer to a lot of other people who haven't seen the fruits of the path. But for those who decide to find this kind of happiness, you'll find a happiness that's more secure because it's not dependent on anything happening out there. It's not an external happiness, but an, an internal one that arises because you're following the path. And then that becomes your nourishment. Persistence matters because you're training yourself to have a whole new diet, you know? And we struggle with diets at first, you know? You, you like your maple donut with the bacon on top because all the hipsters put that on it now. And how can you not enjoy the maple donut with bacon on it? But maybe there's some better stuff out there. You know, my big thing now is oatmeal. That's wholesome, you know? Not a lot of donuts these days, but eating a lot of oatmeal. And now I'm enjoying the oatmeal. But the thing is, you have to replace these other kinds of food with better food, more stable food. It's the same thing with the mind. You know, it might not seem that way at first, but as you continue to develop, you find that that's true that we're feeding into unwholesome states. It's not just that they arise out of nowhere, that we have a causal relationship with them. Our intentions and our efforts, our kamma, karma, which means intention, is what gives rise to their results. So we, we create this loop of unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome intentions, and we need to persist in developing wholesome thoughts, wholesome intentions. And what we know about the path is that everything is preceded by the mind. So the mind is where we start, and it's also where we end on this path as well, but it's where we start with the kind of wholesome intentions we have. So even if we're not perfect in uh, abandoning all unwholesome thoughts, and we're not going to be for like a while, we can persist and have good intentions. And that's the path. You struggle, you fall, you trip, you pick yourself back up, and you continue in a gentle way. So this is not an effortless path. Some people like to think so, and, and if you approach your meditation in that way, you might not see much result, you know. But it's not a strenuous path either. A part of right effort is knowing that balance, knowing how to attune yourself to the present moment. And, and it is definitely about the present moment. That's what we're attuning ourselves to. And this creates in us, this persistence, new habitual patterns. These things that we do again and again. And each time, hopefully, we get a little better at it. We want to see progress on the path. So on the one hand, we see some immediate results. And they may not be as grandiose or as big as we think, but progress is progress. Growth is growth. But we also want to have the goal in mind. Without stressing about it, without worrying about it, with, with an understanding that each little bit we do is enough for now. To feel that on the one hand, this is good enough, but on the other, but it could get better. And always keep that in our minds as we practice. I believe that that would be wholesome intention wholesome thoughts 
to generate more energy in our practice. So uh, I think I'll, I'll end with a quote. I found this really good quote the other day, um, you know, uh, on Facebook, as everyone does these days. Unless you're younger and hipper and you're on Twitter, but I just barely started and I still don't quite, quite know how it works. But I found this on Facebook, and this is a quote by Wilfred Arlen Peterson. As a single footstep will not make a path on the earth, so a single thought will not make a pathway in the mind. To make a deep physical path, we walk again and again. To make a deep mental path, we must think over and over the kind of thoughts we wish to dominate our lives. And uh, I'll end with that thought. Thank you.